0: But some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned them within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is, which is easier to say, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins— He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this.
1: Can you believe Christmas is right around the corner? Uh, I found that out on Friday morning when my youngest son, Jack, ran into my bedroom and said, Daddy, I have something to show you. He grabbed my hand, and he took me into the other room, into the den, where uh, I was astonished to find a 10-foot-tall snowman, which had been blown up in my den. I think it was made for the outside, but it was in the inside, and it was filling up the room. Yeah, My, my family's not much for subtleties, and so that's how I figured out it's Christmas season, and if you haven't bought gifts yet, then you're late. Well, in my house, I have three little boys, and so whenever it becomes Christmas season, uh, we really start to talk about all kinds of things, including but not limited to superheroes. We talk a lot about superheroes. Uh, so whether we are talking about uh, gifts that may include a superhero costume, video game, or action figure, uh, we are constantly thinking about super action figures. It's kind of what we do as boys. Well, I think there's an important conversation that I often find myself having with my boys about this time and maybe you've had this conversation with children or or maybe even your college roommates Uh, but the, the the real question is it goes something like this so if you could have any superpower that you wanted what superpower would you have and why I mean come on so Jack he asked me the other day daddy what superpower would you have if you could have one would it be like super strength like hulk or would it be a super speed like the flash or maybe you'd like to have laser eyes like superman what's what superpower would you have well you know when we're asking that question we're really asking to kind of rank superpowers aren't we like what's more incredible what's more amazing what would shock and surprise and put you at all even more You know, I think we find a similar conversation to that happening here in Mark 2, where we are this morning. Now, you know that we've been tracking through Mark's action packed gospel in a series that we're calling The Amazing True Story of Jesus. And we believe Mark writes this gospel from the sermons he heard Peter preach about his personal experiences with Jesus of Nazareth, who is the most amazing person to ever live. He is Christ. He is the Messiah, God's anointed King. Now, so far, we've seen that Jesus' popularity is exploding due to these many miraculous healings and exorcisms to the point that Jesus is struggling to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. I mean, people are grabbing at Him, asking Him to heal Him, and, and He can't preach the gospel. It's become difficult. Well, we're picking up in Mark 2 this morning, where Jesus actually jumps into His first conflict with the scribes. Asking them which superpower is more incredible, the ability to heal a paralytic or to forgive his sins. And this morning, what we're going to see is that Jesus can forgive sins fully because He's the God Man. If you're writing notes, write that down. That's what we're going to be talking about the fact that Jesus can forgive sins fully because He's the God Man. Something that He can do. And we're going to see this in a few ways. First, uh, you'll notice in verses one to the first part of uh, one to five. That faith compels friends to get their friends to Jesus. In the first five verses, we're going to see that faith compels friends to get their friends to Jesus. Look there again with me in chapter 2 of Mark. I'm going to read beginning of verse 1 and go all the way down to verse 5. And this is what it says. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. You'll remember that Jesus has already in Mark 1 evacuated Capernaum, right? Uh, Because He was so immensely popular and He began to travel around to those 230 towns and villages that surrounded this major city performing healings and exorcisms and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Now here... He seems to have kind of doubled back to Peter's house in Capernaum undetected. But word quickly got out, and the city began to flood into this little house until it was busting at the seams with people who were hoping to see Jesus' power on display. But notice that Jesus is preaching the gospel again as we find him in this home, the focus of his ministry, preaching the good news. And amidst this hysteria, a group of four buddies with a paralytic friend catch wind that this famed healer and exorcist is back. So they snatch up their buddy on his gurney-like bed to sprint to Peter's house, confident that if they can just get their friend into a room with Jesus, that he will heal their friend and change his life. I mean, you just see the confidence. You can't miss the relentless faith here. There's a human shield around Jesus with this crowd of people such that they can't even get to the doorway of this house. Now, maybe some people would quit at that point. And they could have shrugged their shoulders and told their buddy, sorry, better luck next time. Maybe you can walk some other day. But you can see their desperate faith and that they couldn't get to Jesus. And the next thing that you know as you read the text is they're on the roof, Right? We don't know how they got on the roof. Maybe they teleported. Probably not. Probably took the stairs. Most of these single-story dwellings had exterior stairs that they would have just walked up and they would have slept or, or worked on the roof. So it was just pretty sturdy, right? It was a sturdy roof and they're on the roof. And as they're on the roof, they didn't let the roof deter them either any more than the people did from getting to Jesus. You might be thinking, how would a roof deter them? Well, this is a pretty substantial roof. In fact, commentator George Knight writing of this roof says the roof was not flimsy in construction wooden beams or branches were thatched and rushed and, and daubed with mud and mark's description of how the men unroofed the roof therefore suggests a major demolition job in the addition of, of, of the language it, it really in the original speaks of a, a digging out of the roof and it really just adds to the, the graphic effect of what's going on here See, so they are digging up, demoing this roof to get their friend to Jesus. Do you see the desperation of these men to get their friend to Jesus here? Do you see it? They're not, they're not going to quit. And when they saw the human shield of a crowd around Jesus, they took him to the roof. And when they saw the roof, they grabbed their sledgehammers. And when they saw Jesus below, they got their ropes and they went mission impossible and dropped him down, right? Like, he's getting to Jesus. Nothing could restrain these guys from getting their beloved friend to Jesus, because they believed that Jesus could save him. Now, we don't have time to linger here, but I don't want you to miss this. Faith faith propelled these friends to get their friend to Jesus by any and all means necessary. See, their dogged faith would not be deterred by the crowds, by the stairs, by a roof, by the cost of a new roof, or by opinions of the community as they saw their crazed friends digging through somebody's roof to get somebody to this man. And their faith leads their friend to believe the gospel and to receive forgiveness of sins at the feet, the very feet of Jesus, changing not his life just for a day so that he can walk again, but forever. And that's why Jesus forgave his sins. It was because of their demonstration of faith. Now, I love what Martin Luther says about what he sees here. He calls his friend's faith alien faith. And he writes of these friends and their alien faith describing it in this way. He says, these friends win for this sick man with their faith, a faith of his own. See, this sick man at first had no faith. But afterwards, he heard the Word. And Christ poured into the man a faith of the man's own. Awakened him with the Gospel. Jesus is accustomed to pour faith into someone through the Word. You see it? Is there faith, that contagious faith that delivered them to Jesus where they got their own faith? Now, let me just ask you, how desperate are we, how desperate are you and me to deliver our friends, those that we love most, much less our enemies, to Jesus? Now, it's hard to awaken people with the gospel when we've fallen asleep at the wheel or when we just we let just about anything detour us from sharing Jesus with others. So what kinds of impediments keep us from getting those we love to Christ now? Are we too distracted uh, by all kinds of things like making money to bother about bringing people to Jesus? Or are we too concerned with having comfortable relationships, right? We don't want to make the relationship, we want to shake it by talking about eternal things, Uh, We're worried about losing family or or risking uh, all kinds of things. We're too worried to take a sledgehammer to the roof that exists between them and Christ, right? Have we not spent enough time contemplating how we need to know how needy every one of us is for Christ? And the boundless benefits that await them at the feet of Jesus. I mean, have we just not thought about it enough to really be convicted enough to be moved to drive those we love most to Christ? I want to pray with Margaret and Manny Marino who shared at this last week's Thanksgiving dinner that they're praying every day for revival. That revival would break out amongst us. That we would see an unusual work of the Lord and see those who are far from God come near to God in Christ. And let's pray that God would move amongst us in such a way that we would see many of our friends and our loved ones and even enemies come to faith in Christ. Now let me encourage you just to do something with your life practically to stoke your desire to reach the lost. Uh, just four things. You could do more, but here, here's some just to think about. One, pray for a specific lost friend every day. It doesn't have to be the same one, but think specifically, who is in my life? Who has God put in my life that does not know Christ, that needs Christ? And pray for them. Not only pray for them specifically, but in general, pray that God would revive His church. Pray second. Also, remember second verses that propel you outwards. You know, remember verses. They can be verses like John 3.16. A great verse that's powerful when we take it seriously. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Perishing is real and everlasting life is real. Right? Let's let that kind of verse to seep into our soul so that we really see folks as God sees them. And on our last vacation, we were just, um, we took a few days and, I mean it, a few days and went up to Utah, right? Just to see the mountains, to see God's grand design and creation. Worth the trip. Long drive. Uh, lots, of, lots of talking about lots of things. One of the things that we did with our kids is we said, we're going to have a verse that we're just going to talk about every day. Uh, John 3.16 as we're on this trip. Uh, sometimes fight would break out and we'd say, time to go through John 3.16. Let's talk about John 3.16. Amazing the way that we would start talking about John 3.16 and peace would uh, just envelop the car. And then sometimes um, it would be broken by a fight about whose turn it is to say John 3.16. But we want to keep god's word in our lives in such a way that it compels us to look outward third thing we can do is is to budget time for evangelism we want to set aside time where we can invite non-christians into our homes to love them and hopefully get an opportunity to share christ with them and coming along with that number four let's budget some money if we are able to be able to show hospitality those who are non-Christians, inviting them over for dinner, actually making their food, and not like asking them to pay for it later, but just say, look, we'd like to spend time with you hearing about your life and sharing ours in the hopes that maybe we might be able to share with you Jesus and by any and all means possible draw you near to him. And so let us have a heart like they do. Real friends who have faith look to get their friends to Jesus. But there's a second thing we see here in verses five to twelve. Is that Jesus does something only God can do. He forgives sins. He forgives sins. Now, look with me. We're going to read uh, verses 5 to 7, where we see the first part of this. There are really two sub points here. The first is we're going to see Jesus reading minds in 3D in in verses uh, 5 to 7. So, look there with me in verses 5 to 7, where Jesus is actually reading their minds in 3D. It says, And when Jesus saw their faith, faith of these friends, he said to the paralytic, Son, Your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? Now, throughout Mark's Gospel, you'll notice that he is constantly cement gluing together faith and miraculous deeds by God. Now, When you see uh, faith, you you usually expect God to react or respond miraculously. When you see a lack of faith, you expect either Jesus to rebuke them and then heal them anyway. Or or that you see some kind of limitation on the way that God or Jesus Christ responds. See, Jesus' response to this demonstration of authentic faith, I believe, looks strange. And the way that He responds, it looks strange awkward to me for a couple of reasons right Uh, for one this paralytic came for healing in his legs not forgiveness with God right I mean when Jesus says son your sins are forgiven you almost want the paralytic to speak up and say that's great and what about my legs right I mean you didn't you didn't forgive Larry the leper's sins you healed him so can I get some of that but isn't it interesting that the judgmental voice that you would expect to come from the paralytic actually comes from the spiritual men, the, the, the religious leaders, not the paralytic. It's the scribes who get uneasy about Jesus' claim here in verse 7 asking a, a number of questions. You see that in verse 7? He, he the scribes ask a number of questions. Like, why does this man speak like that? I mean, he is blaspheming. And who can forgive sin's But God alone. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, those sound like pretty specific questions. And just catch where Jesus hears the scribes' opposition. Did you notice this? It's in their hearts. Now, Mark clarifies this in verse 8, saying, And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, you see that? They were asking these questions within themselves, in their heart, right? In their head. They're thinking about these things. They're questioning them. Not out here. It's in here. It is something that is intimate in, the, in their thought life. And once again, uh, we don't have time to tear here long, but just notice that Jesus is reading their thoughts in 3D. Their thoughts are as clear as day before Jesus. Now, the specificity of these questions can't be reduced, I don't believe, to Jesus reading body language well right Jesus reads our hearts with the same ease that you or me read Facebook post that Jesus can see clearly what is going on in us and I believe that we see here in this brief description implicitly what's about to be made explicit and that is that Jesus is God he is the God man see the Bible I believe is replete with evidence that God sees our thoughts and so does Jesus here I'm just curious, when you hear that Jesus and God can see your thoughts, even right now, does that sound creepy at all to you? Right? I mean, maybe you even feel a little bit violated, like if somebody hacked your computer. Like that's personal, confidential stuff. You, you shouldn't be looking there. Why are you looking there? Maybe maybe that sounds horrible to you, that uh, you know that that your God can see In your mind, in your heart, in the hidden places. And maybe that sounds horrible to you, but in Psalm 139, catch this, David meditates on God's ability to see us and understand our thoughts as clear and conspicuous as day. And he says, "O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up and you discern my thoughts from afar, even before a word is on." my tongue. You know what I'm going to say? Behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. See, God knows him, and he can't even flee from God's knowledge of him. But catch this, even though he can't run from God knowing him completely and fully, David doesn't apply for life lock to keep God out of his thoughts. It's not what happens. Now, David begs the God who has already searched him out in verse 1 to keep looking in verse 23 to 24. And here's what he says at the end. You've already searched me and know me. And then he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. you see it? Keep on doing it. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, David says, you have searched me in the past. Keep searching me And help me in ways that only you can. And hear me. Jesus sees our thoughts. These scribes rejected Jesus and their thoughts long before they murdered him with their hands. And that's one of the main reasons that Jesus had to come and shed his blood for you and me. Come in close and listen. Don't miss this. Jesus had to come and die for our sinful thoughts as much as our sinful actions. And that ought to terrify us. Except for the mercy and grace of God. You see it? If not for the mercy and grace of God, it should terrify us. We should want to go on lockdown for God to see us. But in Christ, in His blood, if we have put our faith in Him, we invite Him to come and rescue us because He is our rescuer and deliverer. See, Jesus didn't just come to save us from sinful actions. He came to deliver us from our lustful, murderous, covetous hearts. And all of our hearts do these things. But don't miss this. These scribes are more concerned with Jesus claiming the ability to declare this paralytic sins forgiven than they are about him reading their thoughts because of what that would mean. And see, that's what Jesus addresses in our final verses, verses eight to twelve. There we see that the Son of Man forgives sins. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man and I forgive sins. Look there with me in verses eight to twelve again. Here's what Jesus does as he addresses their thoughts. It says, And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they question within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? I mean, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise. Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they all were what amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this before, right? Never seen anything like this. Now, Jesus responds to what the scribes thought was a cop-out In a very clear way. You know, I get what they're saying, though. It's easy to say someone is forgiven of their sins. I mean, it's blasphemous, right? But it's easy to say. And it's hard to prove that sins have or haven't been forgiven. And so maybe these scribes are thinking Jesus took the easy way out, choosing to forgive and not heal, right? They'd rather have the power to heal the sick, which can be seen and tested, than have the power to forgive sins, which is hard, if not impossible, to verify So Jesus calls their hearts to the mats and he challenges the scribes publicly with their own question in verse nine. That's what he says. He says, what's easier, healing a paralytic or forgiving his sins? Of course, they would probably say, well, it's it's obviously forgiving sin saying that. But in verse 10, Jesus reveals really, I think, what I think is the real purpose of this whole episode. See, I think verse 10 is the main point of this whole text what Jesus is trying to show us about Himself in verses 1 to 12. He wants them to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Did you catch that? I want you to know. I want you to be on notice. The Son of Man, who is me, has authority to forgive sins on earth. I have that power, that authority, that's me. I'm I'm unlike anyone you've seen before. Now maybe as you're reading this, it doesn't stun you the way that it would have stunned the scribes. See, the Son of Man... Son of man would have been an interesting title for first century scribes. I mean, the Bible uses it in a number of ways. It can can refer in some ways, like in Ezekiel, to someone who is a man, right? So the son of man, just a human being, a man, person, not a big deal, kind of common, kind of like everyone, right? Or sometimes it's used in a very unique way, like in Daniel 7, where we see this term used to speak of someone as the man. You know what I'm talking about? Which is exclusive. It's not saying it's generally true. You're just like everyone else. It's saying you're exclusive and special. You're the man. Now, you've heard somebody say you're the man, right? If you've ever played sports and you've seen someone like dunk on someone, it's like you are the man, right? Not saying like, yeah, anybody could have done that. No, they're saying like, you just did something that none of us can do. You're the man amongst boys, right? Right? And that's exactly what it means sometimes in the Bible. There is a greatness about this Son of Man. And so it might have been even a little confusing to the scribes. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm a man? Of course you're a man. Or is he saying, I'm the man, right? And Maybe that title, Son of Man, would have been confusing on their ears. But in the Old Testament, this uh, text can refer to a number of things. Mark uses the Son of Man, this title, 14 times in his gospel. And I stand with the majority of scholars who believe that this title comes from Daniel 7. Verses 13 to 14. Amazing text. Um, and Jesus here is saying that I'm the man. In fact, in Daniel's night vision, he looks up, and Daniel leading up to seven, and then in seven, he, he beholds with the clouds of heaven one coming down, descending in the clouds, one like a son of man. And, and it says that he came the Son of Man, to the Ancient of Days, God Himself, and was presented before Him, and to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. It says His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is one of the most majestic pictures And all of the Bible the kingly authority of Christ. I mean, this really is an incredible vision of one like a son of man, right? I mean, he's descending from heaven on a cloud chariot. Now, I don't know what that means to you. But as many of you know, the president has a really impressive Cadillac limo called the Beast, right? This thing is like decked out. It's got like as much protection on it as an army tank, weighs about the weight of an army tank. And wherever you see this unique one-of-a-kind limo driving, you know, that's where Obama is, right? Or that's where Trump is. Like, that's where the president is wherever this vehicle is. Well, when you see a king descending from heaven on clouds, you know that God has showed up. Right? Like, that's not a normal king that comes riding not up to heaven in clouds or a chariot of fire like Elijah, but down from heaven in a chariot of clouds. Right? That's saying, this king comes from heaven, not from earth. And this king, as he is descending upon us, is unlike any other king. Now, you'll know in the Bible, whenever you see a cloud, that is often a picture that tells you a theophany or a God sighting has just happened. And so here in this chariot of clouds, as this king descends, we are seeing a God sighting with this one who is like a man. But not just a man, he's not merely a man, he is the God man. You see it? And here Jesus is making, I believe, that claim about himself. See, he is saying that he is unlike any other that they have seen before. God's heavenly son has arrived. I believe when Jesus, I believe when Jesus is saying that he is the son of man who forgives sins, what he is saying is, watch this. I'm going to show you something you've never seen before so that you will know that Daniel's dream is happening now in real time before your eyes. And God's heavenly son has arrived to inaugurate the eternal kingdom, that one that you have been waiting for. And Jesus turns and tells the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and go home. And he stood up and walked in front of everyone. And I love the response in verse 12. It says they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And little did they know how much they had not seen anything like this. Catch this. Jesus healed the paralytic so they would know that he was the son of man who came with authority to do something more amazing than healing the sick and removing demons, He came to earth, hear me, to forgive sins. See, Jesus came to reconcile people to God. And that's a huge deal. Now, as we think about this, this image of Christ and what He has done and His promise to forgive sins, I think we we see really four responses that we're going to close with this morning. Four responses that we see in this text. Four different responses to the forgiveness of Jesus. That we need to learn from as we close this morning. Okay, four responses. The first, notice the crowd and how they responded. The crowd was amazed by the wrong thing. The crowd was amazed by the wrong thing. Did you notice when the crowd was amazed? Only after Jesus gave the paralytic the ability to walk. They didn't seem phased at all by Jesus' claim to forgive, forgive sins. That was the scribes. See, Jesus didn't come simply to heal them so they could live a little bit longer. This is what Jesus wants us to know. He didn't come to just extend life or or to say that, hey, guess what? Uh, Later, you're still going to have to die and face the wrath of God anyway. Jesus announces that the day of mercy has arrived with Jesus. And, And that mercy would later be purchased by His blood on the cross. And that day is today. It's the day of mercy. Repent and believe and be saved. That's the message of the kingdom that Jesus delivered to us. And so what this means is Revelation 6, 16 to 17 was their future. Horrifying text, Revelation 6, 16 to 17. It was a future that they had awaiting for them and that all of us apart from Christ have to look forward to. It's a horrible day. That's where Jesus comes back to deliver justice on all those who have not joined Jesus' kingdom by putting their faith in Christ. He says, "I'm I'm going to have justice on that day. My wrath will be visited on all of those who have not received the redemption of Jesus Christ through faith. Now, The text is one in which we find one of the most terrifying pictures in all of the Bible. On that day in Revelation, John tells us that the people who are running from the judgment of God are crying to the mountains. Right? These powerful, majestic, large mountains. They're running. They're trying to hide in them. And they cry out to the mountains. And finally, when they feel like there's nowhere they can flee from the presence of God, we find in verses 16-17 to that they say to the mountains themselves, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of, catch this, the wrath of the Lamb. How many of you have ever gone and seen a sheep farm and been terrified by the by? Right? Not really. Right? A lamb is, is really a pretty timid, innocent, docile animal. I, I haven't really seen anybody run from a lamb before. In fact, in the Bible, when we see Jesus come as a lamb, it's a picture of the fact of, that He was innocent and that He was silent before His seers and He laid down His life for us. But hear me, that's the, not the only image of a lamb that we see. See, when the lamb comes back, the lamb, he's geared up for justice. And the day of mercy is over. And what we find is an apocalyptic battle lamb who comes and who is terrifying to the point that we're begging the mountains to fall on our heads if we do not repent and turn to Christ. And he says in verse 17, when this lamb shows up, says for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? See, on that day they wanted to be impressed by David Blaine-like tricks and healings when in reality what they needed was forgiveness of their sins before this majestic God who they were deserving of His wrath. They did not understand how deeply they needed to be forgiven. And the crowd was more amazed by the healing than they were by the forgiveness of sins and they missed the grace that was right in front of their face. How many of us are looking this morning to Jesus for something less amazing than forgiveness of sins? In fact, we would rather not have the forgiveness of sins part and we'd rather have the other stuff that we're looking to Him for. I'd be happy, God, if I could have a happy marriage or if I could have obedient children or if I could have a good paying job. If it meant not having forgiveness with you, I'm fine with that. Friends, we have missed our neediness for the gospel. See, we'd be satisfied with Jesus healing us of chronic illness or making our kids act right or helping us pass classes with good grades or letting our team win the Super Bowl. But catch this, maybe we're thinking this morning that we would believe the gospel if we saw a miracle like these people saw of His healing. And yet, many saw miracles performed by Jesus and catch this, did not believe the gospel. See, what we need is the gospel. And the miracles were to help turn people towards what they really needed Jesus, who is the man who can save us. And if that's you, just know this morning that Jesus died on the cross for you. Please don't leave here and miss God's grace. Believe the gospel. Talk to me or one of my other brothers and sisters in Christ who would love to tell you about eternal life. But there's a second response, not just the one of the crowd. Did you notice the response of the critics? Yeah, the, the religious critics, they rejected Jesus' forgiveness. They were a little more explicit about it, right? They weren't distracted. Or they rejected it. So here we see a horrible picture of the human heart. They saw Jesus do things they'd never seen any human do before. They studied the Scriptures. They knew Daniel 7 better than anyone else. And yet, they refused to put their faith in Him. I mean, how could someone... Know the Bible so well, and yet be blind to Jesus and the forgiveness that only He could offer. Maybe they rejected Jesus because He compromised their job security. I don't know. But what's in their hearts here later led them to killing Jesus with their hands. You see how it it moves throughout the story, the Gospel of Mark, from hands. It starts with the heart, and then it goes to the hands. It begins with angry grumblings in the heart, and then leads to murder. See, none are safe from seeking our own worldly self-righteousness above the forgiveness that stooped down from heaven to help us. Every single one of us. From those who know the word the most to those who know the word the least. None of us are safe from seeking our own worldly self-righteousness. Judging Jesus, the king of righteousness himself to his face above the forgiveness that He offered, that stooped down from heaven to help those who were helpless. You know, sometimes those who were righteous struggle to know the grace of God and the person of Christ even more than others. And Sometimes maybe you know someone who knows the Bible more than you and, and so you're angry at them and you're angry because they don't know as much as you or maybe you don't, you don't feel comfortable around them because you're worried that like, hey, maybe because they know the Bible better they are less needy of God's grace than I am and I feel judged by my own self perception rather than theirs. Friends, what we find here and what we find in the Bible is that none is safe. We all are deeply needy of the grace of God. So let me encourage you, if you find someone that intimidates you with their knowledge of the Bible, don't pray for them less, pray for them more, that God would protect their hearts and hold them fast from sin, that they would not become self-righteous, but that they would become merciful and gentle and they would teach others to the glory of God. You now, we need to be praying for, for pastors like me and Mark that God would make us gracious, not judgmental, for our elders, for, for our Sunday school teachers, for the many professors that we've been gifted with, for our seminary students. And you know, we need to pray for them that God would make us gentle, gracious, kind people that have experienced the mercy and grace of God firsthand, not at a distance. And that's exactly what I believe this text calls us to beg for. As we study the Word of God, which is sweet like honey and satisfying as spiritual food, we need to remember that no amount of biblical knowledge makes us impervious to our need for fresh mercy every day when our feet first hit the ground. We must daily, those of us who are studying deeply, draw near and pray to the King who stood down to us to save our lives. We need to beg Him daily for fresh grace. But there's a fourth person that we see here, and I love this person. It's a new Christian who comes before Jesus believed and was saved. Now, I don't know that he didn't believe before, but it is very clear that something special happens when he becomes Jesus in faith, and and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I believe on that day, this man had faith in Christ. He still needed the cross, but he had faith in Christ at this point, and I love his response. Maybe that's you today. You're someone who has not known Christ, and you've been brought to Christ by someone who loves you deeply. And this morning, you need to give your life to Christ. Friend, let me encourage you, you don't need an altar call for that. Right now, ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Let's talk about it later, about what that means for your life. But there's a fourth response here and a final response, and that's the courageous, faithful friends who get their friend to Jesus. Did you notice that? These faithful friends who get their friend to Jesus. There is enough goodness and greatness, I believe, in God to draw humanity to Himself in and of itself. Please hear me. I mean, sometimes... I think people get this idea that uh, they feel like, Christians feel like we need to terrify people to Jesus. See, I I don't think that's the case. I believe that God is glorious and majestic. Uh, He is altogether good and beneficial to us and loving to us. There is no God like our God who reads our minds and our hearts and loves us anyway. There is no God who is willing to send His Son for us like our God is. There's none like Him. And yet we are so broken that I believe that if left to ourselves, we in our sinful state look at this majestic, holy, righteous, holy, good God and see Him purely because we are so broken, we wouldn't know it if it was staring us in the face. Friends, that's why we need God's Spirit to come and help us to see God and all of His glory as He truly is. And we need friends who are willing to do that for us. Who are willing to drag us to Jesus who are willing to break down the ceiling to get us and others to Christ. See, we don't even want what we should left to ourselves. And I love these friends. These friends who who knew how good God was and wanted to get their friend there even if he didn't know how good God was. You see it? They're dragging him. They're like, "If if you just get there, you'll see what we're talking about. Now, I don't know if these friends, we're not told if before in Capernaum they had been healed and they had testified of the greatness of God and His healing. We don't know that but they had some kind of special knowledge. They really believed confidently that no matter what it took, they needed to get him there, that that would change everything. Friends, if you have experienced the life-saving, changing grace of God, how much more should we know that we need to get our friends to Jesus? See, those men wouldn't let hell or high water or a crowd or a rooftop keep them from getting their friends to Jesus. And what about us? Who are we dragging to Jesus? That risky business of dragging folks to Jesus. But friends, the stakes could not be higher. I love what Ray Ortland's motto is, a motto that I would like to make my own. He says, I, I believe these three things. One, I'm a complete idiot. True story. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. And number third, number three, anyone can get in on this deal. Isn't that good? Anyone can get in on this deal. Are we letting people know that anybody can get in on this deal in the goodness of the grace of God? Friends, that's what we've been gifted as children of God. There is no better message, there is no better gift. The inheritance that awaits us is good for others. So let's go, let's pray.